26 of Talking with TK. I'm your host, Tristan Cannell. Today we feature one of the greats of Australian cricket, in former Australian cricket captain, Greg Chappell. Greg's had an outstanding career. He's got a test batting average of 53.86, while he also captained his country between 1975 and 1977, and then again from 1979 to when he retired in 1984. It's a great chat. It's a special one for me. He's an absolute living legend of cricket. In today's chat, we speak about the Greg Chapel Foundation, which he's opened recently, and also all the work that he's been doing with the homeless, the skills that he learned from the great Don Bradman while applying his trade as a young bloke back in Adelaide, leadership lessons that he learnt in his time as Australian skipper, the backyard battles with his older brother Ian and also younger brother Trevor, and what is it actually like to, to both captain both of the guys and also be captained by Ian during the Breakaway World Series. He's a big believer on mindset and visualization, so we'll be getting some major learning points from Greg in that area. It really was a great chat, so there's a lot of learning points, so I'm very grateful for the time that I actually did get to spend with Greg. Before I get Greg on the show, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show via iTunes. It's all free. If you can as well, please leave me a five-star review on iTunes. That really does help me continue to grow the podcast and reach more people. If you want to get in touch with me, best way is via email. I'm Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. I'm also on Facebook at TalkingWithTK. Now, let's get to today's show. I introduce the great Greg Chappell. Greg Chappell. Greg is one of the greats of Australian cricket, captaining his country for a number of years and having a stunning test average of 53.86. Away from the game, he has made a successful transition into coaching while he's also presently focusing on his very impressive Chapel Foundation. I welcome the man, Greg Chappell. Greg, welcome to the show, bud. Thanks, Tristan. How are you? Doing really well. It's an absolute honor to have you on. I remember growing up, watching all your highlights on YouTube and on Channel 9, so it's an absolute pleasure to have you today, bud. In, in black and white, eh? <laughs> Just the first couple of innings, mate. <laughs> yeah, we, we got into the 20th century reasonably quickly. It was a bit more difficult getting to the 21st century, I think. <laughs> well, let's stay in the present here, Greg. I'm really, like I said, I'm really impressed with everything happening in the Chapel Foundation, because I know that you base this a lot on supporting the homeless people, and even where I li- where I live and where I work in Sydney, it's like the amount of homeless people out on the streets. It, it it's quite shocking sometimes. So, can you tell us a little bit about the foundations and the intentions behind it all? Yeah, I can. Um, you know, I've been involved in various charities over the years. Most of them around based around children. Um, in more recent times, through the LBW Trust supporting the tertiary education of uh, disadvantaged um, people in uh, cricket-playing countries. But I've always had in the back of my mind that I'd love to do something more in Australia. And it probably crystallised in my mind a few years ago when we were living in Melbourne. We 
Uh, we were based in East Melbourne on the edge of the city and right on the edge of Fitzroy Gardens. Yep. I, I used to go into the gardens every morning around 6.30 and do my exercise and so on. And I was quite staggered at the number of people that actually slept in the park. And uh, if you've been in uh, Fitzroy Gardens at 6.30 on a cold winter's morning, you realise that it's not that pleasant. And uh, just the fact that there were so many people sleeping there and, and what also struck me was how young many of them them were. So when Darshak Major, a friend of mine who was the chairman and co-founder of the LBW Trust, stepped down as the chairman a couple of years ago, said to me uh, you know, that perhaps we should do something ourselves, um, that's when I thought the opportunity was there to to raise the, the profile and to raise some money for the homeless, particularly young homeless. I think uh, the figures that I've seen, something like 106,000 people in Australia are homeless and yeah. the best uh, best part of 40% of them are, are under 25 and I think it's, uh, you know, the numbers under 20 are quite frightening and I, I just think it's unacceptable in a country like Australia that we have so many people who are living in most cases without hope. Greg, you know, you were coach of India for a couple of years as well. Living over there for a little while, I'm sure that you probably would have seen a lot of homeless there as well. Did that kind of spur you even more to, to do as much as you can? Yeah, I, I think unfortunately you become a little bit accustomed to it in India and you sort of expect it as part of um, you know a, a huge population like that. But I was staggered when I realised that there were so many Australians in the in the same position for a country like Australia to allow this to happen and for it to be growing at the rate that it's growing is is quite frightening and, and as I said, I think unacceptable in, in Australia. Yeah, with the amount of ambassadors now you've got for the foundation, you know, you've got General Peter Cosgrove, John Howard, Dennis Lilly, Pat Rafter, John Singleton, your two brothers as well. It's quite impressive the amount of people that want to get behind and support this as well. In terms of moving this forward now, have you guys, you know, sat down and created a vision for it? Uh, well, we've had a, a vision from the early days, and, and by the way, those people are patrons of the uh, of the foundation, uh, and we're very fortunate to have so many high-profile Australians and world-credentialed Australians giving us support, and I think that also highlights just how you know, people feel about this this situation. So our plan is to start off in a modest way. We're going to be a fully volunteer organisation. We feel that um, that's the way it should be in a, in a charity sense, that um, those that are involved are doing it for the goodness of their, their heart. So um, we're going to have some some functions. We're starting with a golf day in Sydney to launch and launch the foundation yep. on October the sixth out at Eleanora Country Club, and that that following uh, following that will be a dinner where we'll have an auction of some high profile items. And you know, our our aims are modest uh, in the initial stages, but we hope over a, a ten year period that we can raise substantial funds which we plan to use to support groups that are already working in this area. We don't have any desire to, to start something new. Um, yeah, there are a lot of groups, some high-profile groups, but others not quite so well-known, who really do some great work in, in this area, working with homeless youth and at-risk youth uh, to help them to gain some 
uh, life skills to be able to go out there and participate in the, the broader community and hopefully get their lives back on track. Yeah, so for the audience at home, I've got www.thechapelfoundation.com. We're also on Facebook. Is that the best way for them to keep up with events? Yes, it is. Um, there's an event page uh, there and, um, you know, a little bit more of a story about who our patrons are and what our plans are and our aims are with the foundation. So anyone who is keen to support us and uh, help us to support the homeless, we'd love to hear from them. Yeah, most definitely. I'll have that all on the show notes page as well. Now, Thanks. Now, Greg, I want to take you back to the start because I know that your, your dad was quite a, a good grade cricketer back in Adelaide. You first picked up the bat at age eight. Now, was it one of those things that you were, you followed your dad into cricket or was it your brothers? Uh, it's probably a combination of all of that. I, you know, our family was a, was a sporting family. Dad uh, had a sporting background with his cricket and baseball, but mum also grew up in a sporting household. Uh, her father, Victor Richardson, played some test cricket back in the 1930s and uh, was a, an outstanding all-round athlete. So I think we were very fortunate in the... The genetic lottery, but um, you know the, the nurture from our father and our mother was a very important part of it. And for my sake, having an older brother who was that step ahead of me, being five years older, um, was a great motivation and a great guide for me. And each time he reached a milestone, I think that gave me the incentive to try and follow in his footsteps. I mean, I you know I think we had a cricket bat in our hand much earlier than, than, than eight. I, um, I can't remember a moment in time where we didn't have a cricket bat, a baseball bat or a football or some sporting implement that we were playing with either in the house or out in the, the backyard or around the neighbourhood with friends. Greg, how fierce was the backyard battles? Uh, they were pretty fierce. Um, as I said, Ian's five years older, so I was probably nine before he really showed any interest in me being involved in anything he was doing, which is understandable. That's a fair gap at that, that age. But obviously he ran out of friends around about uh, that, that point because all of a sudden I was recruited to be the opposition in the, the backyard test matches. And, uh, you know, I don't think many people realise that my first test matches were for England because in our backyard test matches they were Ashes test matches and Ian as the older brother was Australia and I had to be England so that was the first challenge for me. I, I didn't want to be beaten by my older brother but I didn't really have my heart in winning for England so um, Dad insisted that we played with a hard ball. Um, he didn't give us any pads and gloves to play with and I think there was some... Um, method in his madness you know he I remember one of the the first things that I can remember him telling me was that you have a bat in your hand for one reason and one reason alone and that's to score runs and I think by not giving us pads and gloves he made sure that we used the bat properly <laughs> so Ian was a bit of a bully then well you could say that I mean um you know, you could take that line or, you know, he was a great educator because he he taught me a lot of important things, not necessarily by design, I don't think, some of it by accident, but, um, you know, I learned being five years younger, I had to scramble and scratch to, to keep up and to, to try and compete. So I learned some really good coping skills. I learned some, you know, competitive instincts and I learned to handle the short ball in the backyards so when I got to play Test Cricket, I, I thought Test Cricket was pretty easy, really. Greg, was it hard to captain your older brother? 
No, uh, yeah, we. It's it's quite funny. It was um, really only uh, once we became adults that we played any cricket together. All of our cricket in the early days was as opponents, and it took me a while to adjust. It took both of us a while to adjust. You know, looking up to the other end and seeing that one or other of us was actually, you know, we were playing in the same team rather than yeah. being opponents. So it, it took a little bit of adjusting then. And then I played under Ian, obviously, as captain. But when I when he resigned as captain and I became captain, you know, he said to me, look, you know, uh, I'm not going to interfere, but I'm, I'll be here if you need anything, just yell out. Um, yeah, he, he made it uh, quite easy, really. I think I was harder for him to captain than the other way around, to be honest. Yeah, are you kind of glad that the World Series of Cricket happened? So you got an opportunity for him to kind of, when you were both adults, to kind of lead you a little bit as well? Yeah, World Series Cricket was a really um, exciting period. I, you know, you, you read about and hear about people that went through historic moments and didn't realise it until much later. Um, we were well aware of the fact that you know, World Series cricket was a, a huge uh, moment and a very historic moment in in the history of cricket. Um, you know, I was lucky that I grew up in a time when only Test cricket was played, and therefore started my career in the old era. We went through the revolution, and we came out, and for the second half of my career, I played in the new era, and so I got to experience all sides of it. But I. I think the on and off the field, that two years of World Series cricket was probably the most exciting period of my, my cricket career. Yeah, just taking you back to the start again, with that style, that beautiful, just laid back and just just really nice style, who were your idols when you were, when you were growing up? Well, the, the heroes of the Australian team at the time were, were fellow Richie Benno was the, the captain of Australia, um, Neil Harvey, Norm O'Neill were two of the yeah. exciting batsmen of, of that time so they were the, the people uh, Alan Davidson Ray Linwell guys like that were the, the guys that I used to watch closely our father encouraged us when we went to the cricket to watch the best players you know watch them closely watch what they do and copy the things that they do because there's a reason why they're the best so even though Neil Harvey was a left-hander I was really struck by the gracefulness of his batting and I think in my mind I tried to to copy that um, and you know I think your personality your physicality the build and so on has a big bearing on it I'm you know tall and lean Ian was shorter and, and more squat so we developed our own styles and again I think that was the cleverness of our father he didn't try and teach us how to play he told us what we should be looking to do and then he allowed us to find the best way to do it and i i think uh, as a coach that's uh, one of the smartest things that uh, that he did for us was really to encourage us to be ourselves and play the way that suited us physically and, and mentally and i think uh, allowing that personal expression to come out was the reason I played like I did. I, Apart from trying to copy Neil Harvey, I didn't really ever think about what it looked like. In fact, I'm probably lucky that there wasn't video replay around until quite well into my adult career because it was funny. The first time I saw myself bat, it didn't look like it felt. Yeah. And I, I think the temptation, it's a bit like the... Um, 
the first time you hear your voice recorded, yeah. it doesn't sound like it sounds <laughs> to you. And that was how I felt about the way I batted. And had I been younger, I may have been tempted to try and change what I was doing to make it look more like it felt. But in fact, luckily, I was on the right track with what I had. Yeah, Greg, is it true that Don Bradman gave you advice on how you should hold your bat or grip the bat? Yeah, I grew up, um, you know, with the the little bit of coaching that Dad organised for us through a family friend. I was taught to hold the the bat with the the top hand, the back of the top hand facing towards the bowler, which um, was very useful from a leg side play point of view, but it was a weak grip for offside play and I'd been chosen to play for South Australia in Sheffield Shield cricket as an 18 year old and I made a reasonably good start to the to my career and the first season was reasonably successful but early in the second season uh, Sir Donald Badman was then uh, chairman of selectors for the South Australian Cricket Association as he was for Australia but so he used to come into our dressing room quite regularly on the morning of games and have a cup of tea with our captain and one of the other selectors and occasionally he'd speak to maybe some of the senior players but he didn't really speak to us junior players and I was very lucky this particular morning that I happened to be standing near the the door of the dressing room as he was leaving and I must have had a cricket bat in my hand because for some reason or other I spoke to him as he went past and just said good morning Sir Donald and he stopped and he said good morning and then he looked down at the bat that I was holding and he he said I'd, I'd change that grip if I were you and I I said uh, what would you suggest and he said well he said the grip that I use worked pretty well and I said well, what what was that grip and he said well you can have a look you can read about it in my book, The Art of Cricket. And I don't know why I did it, but I sort of shoved the bat at him and I said, well, I haven't got the book here, but perhaps you could show me. So yeah. he showed me his grip, which had the V between the thumb and forefinger of both hands sort of pointing down the back of the the bat, which pulled my top hand more around towards the back of the, the bat. And he said, look, I think you'll find this um, more beneficial, will help you to strengthen your offside play. He said, um, you know, it'll feel a bit strange, but I would persevere at it, persevere with it if I were you. It'll probably take you a few weeks. And with that, he started to leave, and then he stopped and turned back, and he said, by the way, I've only ever given this advice to one other person, and he didn't take it, and he's no longer in the team. <laughs> and, and with that, he turned and walked out the dressing room. So I quickly grabbed two of my teammates, Jeff Hammond and, and uh, Terry Jenner, and said to them, you know, would you mind coming back down to the nets? I want to try something. And uh, I tried the new grip, and funnily enough, it didn't feel strange. It felt quite natural to me, and I used it that day and every day you know, for the rest of my career, and I've got to say it was the, a very uh, fortuitous moment for me and a very good piece of advice from the greatest batsman ever. Yeah, priceless advice. Greg, just insights into how you would prepare for a game. In terms of the week or maybe a couple of days before, what are you doing? Well, apart from some physical practice, you know, uh, we, we were part-time cricketers. You know, cricket was a, a pastime in, in the day we played, so we had to have a job outside of cricket. So we'd only train two days a week, two afternoons a week, uh, Tuesday and Thursday. Um, it sort of went on a four 
four-day cycle in the sense that um, we would uh, we would train with the state squad um, on a Tuesday. We'd play, we'd uh, train with our club on the Thursday night. Then the following week, Tuesday and Thursday, if there was a Shield game on the Friday, would be with the state squad. So down at Adelaide Oval, and, and I um, I worked in the city in North Terrace in Adelaide, which was probably a kilometre at best down the road from Adelaide Oval. So I'd get out of work around about 3.30 and uh, run down uh, King William Road to Adelaide Oval. I was so excited about getting out of the office and outdoors and, and ready for a training session. So we'd have the two physical sessions, but I learned very early on that um, you know the mind is a powerful thing and a very important thing um, to to utilise. And uh, so I also did quite a bit of contemplation on games coming up. You know, two or three days out, I would start thinking about who the opposition were, yeah. who their bowlers were. If I'd played against them before, I would actually visualise myself batting against them. And I found that was the best training that I ever did. Um, yeah, the physical training was, was important uh, from a fitness point of view and even from a batting point of view. But I learnt that those sessions where I sat often in the dark in the room just quietly uh, thinking about how I wanted to play the game and how I wanted to bat against different bowlers and actually imagine myself playing the perfect innings. It was the only place that you could really have a perfect training session where every ball hit the middle of the bat and you hit the gaps and scored scored runs. And I found that from that point onwards, that my batting really started to improve and, and what I've subsequently learned is that the the brain doesn't really know the difference between a real session and an imagined session. If you can, particularly if you involve the emotions, you can hear the ball hitting the bat, you can feel the emotions that are flowing through the body, almost hear the crowd um, in, in the background. It really is as uh, just as if you've done it uh, in, in reality. And so I spent a lot of time before games and then after a game I would reflect on how things went, you know, what worked and what didn't work and I was constantly making mental adjustments. I, apart from the grip change that Sir Donald Bradman suggested, I never changed anything, you know, consciously changed anything that I did. Any changes that happened were basically subconscious from those reflections on, on what was working and what wasn't working. Yeah, Greg, who introduced you to visualisation? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I I was working uh, at the time that I, this understanding came to me. I was working for the Coca Cola bottler bottlers in in South Australia. A really good company. It was a locally run business, um, and the the guys that owned the franchise were sportsmen themselves, and they employed quite a few young sportsmen and put us through uh, a management training program and part of that was personal development um i went to a number of um functions where people spoke um talked about their life and their their success and at one of those uh, functions uh, there must have been uh, copies of a book called psycho cybernetics that was on sale and i bought this book 
And I was absolutely fascinated by the story. The, the guy that wrote the book, Maxwell Maltz, I think his name is, mm. was, uh, was actually a... Um, uh, um, surgeon that um, plastic surgeon. Okay, so he he had worked with a lot of people that had disfiguring injuries and given them skin grafts and um, you know improved their uh, their features. And he talked about the fact that it was amazing. A lot of people, even though he had overcome their physical disfigurement mentally still saw themselves as disfigured and and didn't didn't change in any way shape or form but those who recognized you know took on board mentally that they were a different person really did something with with their lives and he talked about the power of the mind and that was the first time that i'd really thought about this uh, thing that we call the brain and just how powerful those thoughts are. And, and when I reflected on it, I realised that, you know, I had been using the power of my mind to a certain degree, but without knowing about it. And from that day onwards, you know, I, I recognised that I'd had a routine. On the, on the good days, um, my routine was very different from on the, on the not-so-successful days. So all of a sudden I became conscious of how to use my mind and how important it was. And that was really the turning point for me in my career. Guys, we hope you're enjoying the interview with Greg Chappell. Our last episode was with Damien Fleming, and here's a snippet from the show with Damien. And the night before, we'd come up with a plan. Because Lance Clusner was such a dangerous batsman, he was on strike. We decided to bowl wide Yorkers outside of stump, which they do a lot now, but at that stage, that was quite radical. And for me, to be fair, they come up with the night before the game. They didn't actually... We didn't get two days to practice them. And... A couple of overs before, I actually yorked him three times from around the wicket, cramping him. And then I just remember thinking, if I get hit through for four through the leg side here, I'm going to get such a rocket. So I tried the wide york. I didn't quite get it right. He got a thick edge for four. four yeah. So in hindsight, I reckon the the yorkers um, angling in were probably the best option. So ran in, released it. And it wasn't a bad Yorker, actually, you know, just outside of stump, and, and he smashed it for, like, I, I don't think a ball has been hit that hard ever in the history of the game. Fast. And, yeah, I remember it, yeah. And, they got, and you got to remember, in England, there's short boundaries, quick outfields, the white duke balls retain their hardness and didn't go reverse, you know. With the white kookaburra, it, it was great bowling at death. They got soft and they swung, right? So it, they were awesome to bowl with, so... So all of a sudden, you've lost a few weapons from your armoury, as in softball and reverse and big outfield. So now it's five balls, five runs to win a five balls, one wicket. Steve Waugh goes, you're right. And I'm said, I'm getting the skipper. And I release the second ball. Good line. It's a half volley. He belts it before. Like, absolutely. He doubles the speed on this one. And it's a tie. And I can sense everyone's heads dropping down. And I have a bit of fun with it. Um, in in, uh, in corporate speaking gigs, but I do in a serious mode. Um, I just had this voice that just said, "You have to bowl in out now." So go back and check that out. 
Our next episode is with Boomer's legend Shane Hill. So subscribe for free via iTunes and please leave me a five-star review. But for now, let's get back to the show with Greg Chappell. Yeah, away from the game, Greg, is that something that you did a lot, research and reading books? Yeah, I, I went off as a 19-year-old. I went and played county cricket in England. It was quite a an amazing experience. I mean, when I look back on it, I was so naive and, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And, I mean, why Somerset actually took me on as a professional, I've got no idea other than, you know, I'd had a couple of reasonable, reasonably successful seasons for South Australia. But I soon, and, and I was so excited about the fact that someone was going to pay me to play cricket full-time. Yeah. And, and that this, you know, this was obviously going to be a good thing for my cricket. And in the first season it was because I was playing six days a week and you were batting, you know, so many times a week. And, you know, I was doing some bowling as well. You know, in Australia, if you batted, in a first-class season in those days, you know, 12 or 14 times, that was that was a big year. And all of a sudden, you know, within about three weeks, I'd batted more often in, a, in county cricket than I was going to do in a season of Sheffield Shield cricket. But during my second season there, I started to realise that this was almost mind-numbing, you know, playing cricket every day, thinking about nothing else but cricket, um, you know, probably wasn't the greatest environment um, to, to get better. And so I thought about, you know, maybe I should study. Uh, and then when I reflected on that, I thought, well, I wasn't that successful first time around studying. Why would I be any better than the next time around? Yeah. So what I decided to do was to read books about successful people. And so I started buying autobiographies um, and, and biographies of successful people from, you know, Winston Churchill to, you know, um, sportsmen, actors, it didn't matter, anyone, any name that I knew that had been successful. And a lot of them were of a sporting background. Um, you know, I, I sort of got hooked on, on reading for learning and, um, you know, learning in a way that was going to help me in what I was doing. And I think that and... I went in, I, when I, after the second season of county cricket, I decided I didn't want to play full-time cricket. I wanted to work for a living and, you know, try and improve myself enough to play for Australia that that was going to be the way that I was going to get my satisfaction from cricket whilst building some skills away from cricket that would, would help me after cricket. So I went into the life insurance industry because... What I read in a number of these books about so-called self-made people, yeah. uh, those guys that had made a lot of money had either made it through real estate or life insurance because a lot of these books were American books. And, um, uh, you know, so I, I didn't know much about either of them, but I sort of felt that I had a, you know, I didn't need to know much about life insurance, whereas real estate I probably needed a bit more and I needed some money to get started. So... I decided that if I went into, and the other thing I was looking for was a commission-based business. I, I, I'd worked for some really good companies, but you know, when I went away to play cricket, I didn't get paid in, in some of those jobs. So I thought if I was on a commission-based, uh, had a commission-based job, that I could work as hard as I could for six months, earn enough to last for 12 months that would pay for my cricket. So so that's how I got into the life insurance industry. But again, you know, there was a lot of personal development 
a lot of um, conferences that I went to and, again, a lot of um, people who spoke about, you know, their successful life. And these were people from business, they were from sport, they were from the arts, they were from all walks of life. And I, I remember walking away from one of those speakers, and I don't recall who it was, but it just struck me as I walked down the back stairs of this building that these guys are all saying the same thing. They're saying to be successful at something, you have to understand the key points of of whatever it is that you're doing and get good at those key points. Don't get caught up with the, the peripheral stuff. Just find out what the, the core of the business or activity is and get good at those key points. And that's when I decided that, and it was around that, you know, that, that's when the uh, that and the mental side of it sort of came together. And I realised that the key for my cricket was going to be my mind, my thoughts, my attitude, um, you know, the the way I prepared myself was going to be the most important thing. And as I say, that was the turning point for my cricket. Yeah, Greg, did you share this with anyone, like your brothers or maybe a couple of close friends? Yeah, I talked to, to a few people about it. I, I got the distinct impression that um, a lot of them didn't quite understand it or yeah. were a little bit frightened of it, thought it was a bit of mumbo-jumbo. Um but I just knew instinctively that that was the key for me. I don't know whether it was the key for anyone else, but that that was going to be the key for me. And if I, uh, you know, if I could um, replicate in my mind the good days and the good thinking, I would set myself up better than if I was allowing myself to get dragged into the negative thinking. Because what I what I'd learnt from my early experiences was that if you're not conscious of the thought processes that are going on it's very easy to slip into negative thought patterns so i I started you know as a a batsman um using a bit of a mantra as the bowler ran in and that was really to stop the negative thoughts from popping to the into the conscious mind and start to worry about what might might go wrong rather than focusing on what i could do to make it go right yeah did you you know you know, with the underarm incident, you know, obviously you were on a, under a lot of pressure in that period of time. You know, did the look? I wasn't there during the time. Did the team lose a little bit of trust in you? And if they did, how did you win that trust back? Um, it it was something that built up over a you know over a number of months. It wasn't something that was just a spur of the moment. And and I think you know when it happened. Um, I, most people, and not least of all my teammates, were stunned by the by it all. And and for a, for a little while, it um, nothing was said in the dressing room. And it was some time afterwards. In fact, a few of us were heading to the um, the airport when Doug Walters, who was always a fairly astute fellow, uh, made the observation that um, that that afternoon had reminded him of the time he went to the movie called The Sting, which which had quite a twist in the tail at the end of it and yeah. um, he said yeah there were 30,000 or 50,000 people at the MCG today who walked away thinking like I did after I watched the movie The Sting what the hell happened there mm. and you know all of a sudden you know, the ice was broken and, and people started talking about it and I really think that um, you know it didn't take long for us to sort of get back on, on an even, even keel I, I think it surprised me 
um, and it, it surprised the other guys around the team that, um, you know, obviously all of the things that were going on around the, the cricket at that stage had, you know, taken its effect. And quite a few of the guys came to me and sort of said, well, we look, you know, how can we help? You know, what, what things can we do to take some of the load? Um, and so in a lot of ways it, it broke the ice and, um, you know, allowed us to communicate a little bit better about just some of the things that were going on. Yeah, so it was a, kind of like a blessing in disguise that was the cricket board open to helping you a little bit more after that time? Uh, some of them were. Look, there were some beforehand. I think, the you know, in David Richards, who was the um, uh, secretary uh, of, uh, of the cricket board, which is now, you know, is the equivalent of the chief executive officer of the cricket board. I mean, David was very very good and very helpful um, all along. But I think we were all under the pump. I mean, he was under the pump as well. You know, after World Series cricket, a lot of things changed. Um, but, you know, there was no more personnel. I'm sure David Richards' workload increased uh, exponentially after World, cricket, after World Series cricket, and he probably didn't have any more help. And, you know, I certainly didn't have any more help, and yet we were playing a lot more cricket. There was a lot more media involvement. We didn't have a... We didn't have a media manager. We had a, you know, we had a touring manager that came with us. But, you know, it was um, nobody was ready for the change that took place after after World Series cricket. Not least of all me, because, you know, I didn't didn't appreciate how the the job had changed. But I, I'd been captain before World Series cricket, but Ian became captain during World Series cricket, and then I became captain again. And yes. I, I didn't—I don't think I'd recognised for a while just how much more um, the extracurricular, off the field activities had increased for the captain. I mean, if the media wanted to talk to me, they—you know—they rang the hotel or they rang my home number, and it, you know the phone would be ringing at six o'clock in the morning and could ring as late as midnight. So there was. Yeah, you know, and there, there was no filter between you know the captain and and the uh, the media at that stage. Um, you know, we were uh, we were playing obviously a lot. Uh, one day cricket had become a big part of the the scene during World Series cricket. So the the number of games had almost tripled from uh, before World Series cricket, and we were playing all of the weekend, the Saturday Sunday games, the double headers as they were called. Mm. You know, the Australian team played, and as captain, I found two one-day games in a row like that was probably more demanding than a test match on the captain. So there was all this sort of stuff going on, and, and I think what the underarm incident did was to, to be the circuit breaker and make people realise that, hang on, we, you know, we need to change things here and we need to give a bit more support to, uh, to some key, pe- key people, not least of all the captain. Yeah, from all the learning experiences and just from people that you've been involved with, how would you describe your leadership style, Greg? And in terms of you coaching now, what good traits do you see in good leaders? I think communications is the key to, um, uh, to any sort of leadership management position. Um, you know, I got better as a, as a communicator and I had to get better. I, I think... Um, Early on in in my captaincy career, I sort of knew what I was thinking about, obviously, and I understood and I saw you know the direction that we needed to go. I probably didn't share that information enough with 
with other people and not least of all the, the players around me. And I think, you know, the things that I've learned over the years and, and something that, you know, Ian did as well as a captain was to, to give people, um, you know, confidence that he believed in them. He, he, they understood what was expected. And I think that's the, the key to it is if, if you can make it clear to people that, uh, you know, what their role is, that you, you know, respect their ability to, to be able to carry out their roles and allow them to, to make some mistakes, but maybe if necessary, um, you know, counsel them or, um, you know, talk to them about um, how they might do it better if it's not, not working quite so well. And I think from a coaching point of view, that's, that's a, a big part of it, keeping the confidence of the group up, being, being able to... Um, uh, communicate their roles and, and what's expected of them um, and, you know, assist them to do that, uh, sort of, you know, pick them up and counsel them after um, if they haven't uh, had, a, had a particularly good day. Take those coaching moments. I think, you know, the danger as a, as a leader and as a coach is that you try and micromanage. I don't yep. think that works. Yep. Um, I think you've got, to, you've got to set the parameters. It's a little bit like parenting. You know, try and make it as safe an environment as possible, but um, allow the allow them a little bit of rope to make mistakes, because it's from those mistakes that you learn and and, and you get better. So it's uh, being able to manage that environment well, to allow each individual to achieve their potential. Great advice. You know, Greg, I've just got a couple of personality questions just to wrap up the interview. Who presented you with your baggy green? Nobody. Nobody. Uh, it came in a in a parcel of um, other things. In those days, you just uh, someone delivered a parcel with a cap and a jumper, and or you collected it from the uh, the, the cricket board offices. Um, it, that was a tradition that came in after we finished playing. Now, during your career, you had two great fast bowlers in Jeff Thompson and Dennis Lilly. What was it yep. like to captain two guys? Two fastballs, probably two of the greatest of all time. It wasn't that hard, really, because uh, they were both very uh, competitive individuals and they were great bowlers. So it was a blessing to have the, you know, those sort of guys. They, they were very different in personality. I think, you know, when I stood alongside Ian at Slip when he was captain, I, you know, I sort of learned, uh, you know, I, I sort of got the impression that you had to be a, an amateur psychologist to be captain of Australia. I soon found out that when I became captain, amateur wasn't good enough. You had to be a fully-fledged psychologist to to work with, with these guys who all had different personalities. You know, there was egos involved and all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, you, you soon learnt that, um, you know, how to treat each one differently. Um, you know, Dennis was a very driven uh, sort of high work ethic uh, made himself into the the bowler is what he was. Tomo was um, was a lot more laid back. Um, natural ability came out of every pore. Um, you know, he probably uh, was more instinctive than Dennis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dennis, Dennis was a lot more thoughtful and planned. Um, each one of them, uh, you know, needed different motivation um so I, I sort of had to learn what things worked for for each each one of them and, and that was the same for all the individuals in in the group and i mean you hoped you got it right you didn't always get it right i know there were a couple of occasions when i pissed dennis off seriously um 
You know, I remember a test match in uh, in Adelaide. I think we were playing against Pakistan. Um, we um, we were batting uh, late in the innings, and it was in the first session of you know day three or four, and we were looking to set a declaration. And Gary Gilmore went out and uh, left-handed batsman, left-handed bowler, and he he got a quick fire sixty or seventy, and um, you know. Gary, or Gus as he was known, um, was a pretty, pretty much a confident sort of player. And, yeah, we, we declared, I declared the innings closed so that we had to bowl for about six overs before lunch. I wanted sort of two cracks at the, the top order with the, the new ball. And in my mind, um, I just knew that it was the right opportunity to Gary, give Gary Gilmore the new ball rather than give it to Dennis Lilly because we were only going to bowl, you know, if Dennis bowled from one end, he was going to bowl three overs maximum before the lunch break. So it was going to take him an over or so to warm up, whereas Gary was fully warmed up and ready to go. So I made a, you know instinctive decision to give the new ball to, to Dennis, but I didn't think to explain to Dennis why I was doing it and he took it as a slight that he wasn't given the new ball. So he got seriously pissed off and it wasn't until you know, Rod Marsh realised what was going on and had a bit of a talking to him that um, you know, after lunch Dennis bowled badly because he was so angry with me that um, you know, he, he didn't really focus on what he was doing until Rod realised what was going on and gave him a bit of a talking to and he... He snapped out of it and, and got back to, to bowling well. The good news is that Gary Gilmore got a wicket before lunch, so I think, you know, in my mind, I was happy with the decision, but I hadn't taken into consideration the impact that it was having on someone else. <laughs> Great captaincy, Greg. All right, next one is, Greg, apart from your home ground in South Australia, what was your favourite venue to play in, in Australia and overseas? Well, I grew up in an era when we didn't have television until I was well into my teens. So the only way we could watch cricket was to watch it live, um, which we did at Adelaide Oval. So Adelaide Oval is always very, very much a, a favourite ground. Um, I just loved the smell of walking into that into that ground. But the other thing was that um, we listened to a lot of cricket on the radio, and the commentators were pretty good at. Um, you know, describing and creating the atmosphere at each ground. And it was quite interesting. I, I felt listening to it that each ground had its own character, its own distinct character. The sounds of the trains in the background at the MCG and, you know, the noise around the ground, each of the, the grounds was, um, was quite distinct. And I, in those years of listening to cricket over the radio, the Sydney Cricket Ground had a real special... Uh, appeal to the you know the sounds and the atmosphere of that ground. Listening to Test cricket from England, uh, each of the grounds had their own distinct personality, and Lords was another one that came across the radio waves as being special. Yeah, and I've got to say that um, I wasn't disappointed with any of the grounds. When I went there, I felt like I knew them intimately because of this the atmosphere that the commentators had created around each ground and. And, and the two grounds that really stood out to me 
coming across the radio waves, as I say, were Lords and Sydney, and I wasn't disappointed with either of them. They were exactly like I imagined they would be when I, when I got there. And the, the thing that was most appealing about those two grounds is that the, the main pavilion and the, the dressing rooms were exactly the same dressing rooms that Don Bradman and W.G. Grace and all of the greats before us had, had changed in. And there was a feeling of the ghosts of the past in each of those grounds. And I, I played cricket matches on both of them when there was hardly anybody in the ground and yet the atmosphere was still electric and, um, you know, they were great grounds to play on. Yeah, Greg, maybe it's where your, your early visualisation came through. Like, yeah, to really visualise what was happening as I was speaking to you over the radio. Yeah, I think that's a good point because I have no doubt that the best players that I've met have got really, they're, they're, they're creative, you know, they've got creative minds. They they, um, they probably, whether they know it or not, are very visual in that regard um, and they can see the, the picture in their mind's eye of things and they can see how they can make runs or they can see how they can take wickets in, in these different conditions or different situations. And I think that's a very important part of successful people is that they have vision that they, and they are very creative thinkers. All right, I'm going to take you back to your childhood, Greg. What posters did you have on your bedroom wall growing up? Uh, I don't think I had too many posters. I I had cricket books, um, so I read read cricket books. I read um, we had baseball books because we played uh, baseball growing up as well. It was a winter sport in those days, and yeah. so I can remember we had the fireside book of baseball. I think Ian must have got that. Um, as a teenager, and there was a there was a dice game, a, a baseball dice game that um, was explained in that um, in that book, and and we played those games at night time when we couldn't be outdoors running around. We'd be playing dice games of baseball. We invented our own dice game of cricket, um, sort of based on on that that book. So I think yeah, they they were the things that that motivated me. I. Um, I don't recall having too many posters up around the the room at all. We, it was quite austere at our place because we spent most of the time outdoors. Did you guys share a room? Uh, early on, um, it was a three-bedroom house. Mum and Dad had one of the bedrooms, so um, I, I shared, shared a room with uh, Trevor early on, but then Dad uh, built a sunroom on the back of the house, and I saw that as my escape. I could... Um, I could have my own room, so I sort of uh, conned the old man into uh, setting up at one end of the, the sunroom, put a, uh, a a wardrobe up as a sort of a room divider and a bed behind that, so I had a bit of privacy and um, felt like I was a grown-up at last. <laughs> Greg, final question. You're going to be hosting a private dinner party. You've got five invites. Now, only rules, no family or friends, but you can invite anyone dead or alive. Who would you like to invite? They'd all probably be, uh, not necessarily all, all sporting people. I mean, um, Keith Miller, I think, would be one person from, from cricket that I'd, I'd like to, to have there. Um, Mandela would obviously be one. Muhammad Ali, Jack Nicholas. Um, golf is sort of yeah. my pa- passion since um, cricket days. So Nicholas was someone I watched um, when I started getting interest in golf was sort of the, the peak of his career. 
think he'd be a, a fascinating person. How many have I got there? You've got four. I actually watched a great documentary on uh, Nicholas the other night. It was, it was great. Yeah, fascinating uh, individual. I think Ben Hogan would be another one. He was a very reclusive individual, perhaps a little bit uh, the, the golf equivalent of Sir Donald Bradman. I think um, he was. Uh, he's another one that I, I would love to be able to pick his brains. Yeah, absolutely. Before I let you go, Greg, everyone, I want you, if you want to get in touch with Greg, www.thechapelfoundation.com. Like I said, that's also on Facebook, so give that a follow at The Chapel Foundation. Greg Chapel, it's been an absolute honor to have you on the show today, bud, and I really appreciate you sharing all the different stories and giving all the different advice, mate. Thanks, Tristan. Thanks for the opportunity, and I appreciate your support, mate. And that was Greg Chapel. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Really hope you enjoyed the show. Next on the show, we've got Boomers legend and Sydney Kings former captain Shane Hill. Also got former Brisbane Bullets superstar, one-time Olympian with Australia, and American-born basketball superstar Leroy Loggins. So a couple of great shows there. Again, thanks for tuning in. If you want to connect with me, best way is Facebook at Talking with TK, or you can send me an email at Tristan at talkingwithtk.com. I would love to hear any of your feedback or guest suggestions. But until next time, I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking With TK.